welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life fit expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, good evening, everyone. It's Deb Crow. It's March the 28th, 2018, and I'm not really sure where the month of March went, but I'm happy to say that at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's still light and beautiful out, and I'm just so embracing the spring season. So tonight, I have a very special episode of the Changebook Radio Show, and I am interviewing Jim and Sophia Papoulis. And they have been our sponsor of the Changebook Radio Show for March 2018. So let me tell you a little bit about them both, and then we'll bring them on live. And we are just looking forward to such a great interview. So Jim co-founded the Foundation for Small Voices, which was officially launched with its first Sounds of a Better World concert at Carnegie Hall in January 2000. The Foundation for Small Voices is greatly inspired by Jim's dedication to children and music. In addition to teaching songwriting workshops globally, he also donates his composer royalties back to the Foundation, in addition to a significant portion of his time and talent to children by composing music for them so that it can be enjoyed by many. Jim is known for work that combines contemporary, classical, and world sounds, and for his choral work, which is often sung from the perspective of the singer. He has made significant contributions to choral music, revitalizing the choral repertoire with songs whose roots are classical and world, incorporating many genres and styles with vocal percussion and world rhythms. Sophia Papoulis is a conductor, choral clinician, and music educator, and is honored to serve as creative director for the Foundation for Small Voices. After becoming familiar with the foundation through a songwriting workshop in 2006, she began volunteering with the organization when she first moved to New York City in the fall of 2007. Since then, she's been involved in several capacities, both artistic and operational, volunteering with the Holiday Gift Drive, serving as a conductor for several events throughout New York City and the United States, recording and producing music in the studio and taking on administrative and programmatic responsibilities. So as you can see, I have a dynamic duo tonight on the show. So Jim and Sophia, welcome to the Changebook Radio Show. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I I was reading so much about you over the course of my month with your gracious sponsorship, and I was thinking to myself, how can I even cut this down to do an intro? So I, I've given a mere snippet of the work that you're both doing, and I'm just really honored and privileged to have this time with you tonight. And I know that you both have extremely busy schedules, so I just want to say thank you for taking the time and being able to to be present on this interview with me tonight. Oh, we're thrilled. Thank you so much for having us. 
So I wanted to just start off to um, help our listeners learn a little bit about you. And I'm, I'm going to just propose the question to both of you and, and you're both welcome to, to respond. But I just wanted to know, maybe I'll start first with you, Jim, is where, where did you get your, I'm going to say, influence or love for composing did you have some early passions or influences that you could share with us uh yes well um i mean music's always been a a huge part of my life and uh, i grew up with uh, four sisters and we all played instruments and the way i started writing music was there was nothing written for two flutes violin clarinet and piano so i started when i was about maybe 15 i started doing some arrangements and some writing so we could all play together and uh, music was always a very important part of my life growing up. My mother is from the Congo, uh, Kinshasa, um, and uh, she was born and raised there. Her parents were missionaries from Sweden. So I grew up with a lot of Swahili and French and African djembe beats, and, and, and that was a big part of my childhood. And my father, who's a scientist, uh, loved music but didn't play that well. He was very poor growing up in Athens and studying mathematics, and he would do uh, he would play his, he had about six pieces that he knew. He played Chopin in the morning, Beethoven in the evening. Um, and it was always a big part of our lives. We sang a lot together. So yeah, music has always been a sort of a focal point of my life. And, and it's, it's been a, I have very fond memories of, of musical experiences growing up as a child. Well, what an interesting uh, collaboration between all of the different genres of music that you had exposure to growing up. And Sophia, can I ask you the same question? Did you have early influence? Did you come from a musical family? How did your love of music come to fruition? Yeah, well, you know, I think a combination of things. Um, My family really enjoyed singing together in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, if we would get together around holidays, someone would be playing guitar and we'd be singing or playing piano, you know, it was sort of a more sit around and sing songs we all knew together. And just a lot of that. I remember my dad playing guitar and we would sing with him and, um, you know, and so, and I have a lot of extended family who are, who uh, really um, have a strong background in music and theater actually as well. So I grew up in the musical and theater worlds. Um, and, you know, I think most, I mean, for me, I went the, the teaching and conducting route. And I think, you know, like most teachers, like many teachers, I should say, many teachers I know, um, you know, it, it, that, that route sort of began with an inspirational teacher of my own. And I remember my first music teacher and I remember every music teacher since. And um, in particular, my very first music teacher in elementary school, who I still remember so well and my high school um, choral conductor really just inspired me to want to, not only make music myself, but lead children to make music. And, you know, and I just love, I, I've played instruments as well, but I just love that with singing, you carry your instrument in your body and you can do it anytime you want and under any circumstances and it's accessible to everyone. You don't need to be able to purchase an instrument. You don't need to, um, you know, you just have it. And I, um, I just kind of love the magic that that creates. 
Well, I love that, and I, I, I love how eloquent you said that we don't need an instrument, and some of us are very good at it, and some of us are not, and that's why I think <laughs> we're always afforded the the right to sing in the shower. So I was, I was laughing right. to myself <laughs> listening to you say that. Now, I know, Jim, that you have a lot of projects on the go, and I really wanted to think of a great question that I could ask you around the composing work that you do. So do you currently have any challenges with what you're working on now, or have you had some uh, compositional challenges and what is always your goal when you start a new project? Well, most of my, uh, certainly my, my, my work choirs is based on choirs for youth. I mean, I'm a firm believer that music can, make us better people, make us kinder people, make us more compassionate people, make us people who listen, uh, make us people who learn how to work with one another. And I think it's I am, my life commitment really is to creating music that choirs can relate to and that they feel they can own. So um, I think the, the issues now going on, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things going on in society that are difficult. And I like to try to address those through music because uh, the young people of the world are so intuitive and, and, and know so much about, you know, they have such deep understandings of the problems in the world and they want to somehow create that. And music is a vehicle to do that. So when you ask if I have any problems or issues, I mean, I guess it's, it's being sensitive to all walks of life in, in many ways and, and, uh, you know, religious, uh, what, what people believe in, what, what, what their parents believe in. So I try to be an accepting person. I try to promote, uh, acceptance uh, of all voices. I mean, that's sort of my biggest uh, issue that I that, that I would say I would have to tackle right now is 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 letting every voice be heard and and every everyone has their own voice and it's just very important. I mean, often voices are squashed in certain areas of society in the world and and I think it's just really important to let those voices be heard and that's that's sort of a cornerstone of my work as as a composer. Well, I love what you said there, and I know that there is so many quotes about music uh, that I have seen over my years as a professional, and, and I always love to go back and read because I think sometimes music can express maybe things that can't be said through regular verbal communication and mm-hmm. just that relatability. And and on that note, I know that you and Sophia and the Foundation – are working on a new project called Music Changes the World Project. And I was wondering if you would let our listeners know how that came about. And we've been posting the video for you. I I can't even tell you how many times I've watched it. And I just find it so compelling. And I, I love seeing all the children. So would you let our listeners know what you've been doing the last couple of years and what your goal is? Yes. Um, well, our goal at the Foundation for Small Voices is to raise money and awareness for music programs. And uh, recently, uh, a lot of arts and specifically music, music programs have been cut. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So there, uh, to me, it's it's very important to raise money for these these organizations. And uh, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, we were talking with our, our board a couple of years ago, and we said, all right, we have a lot of requests. How are we going to fulfill all these requests? How are we going to raise this money? And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, we, we, we could, let's, um, the power of a choir. For example, if you have a 200-piece choir and one person isn't there, you don't quite notice it. But obviously, if you take everybody away, you notice it. So the, the magic and the metaphor of 
of sort of a grassroots, everyone joining together to create something sort of came to me. And I thought, okay, let's create a, a global entity and we'll call it Music Changes the World. And we'll invite choirs because I'm in touch with quite a few choirs all throughout the world. I mean, many hundreds of thousands of, I mean, there's, there's millions of choirs literally in the world. And now that, that, uh, that I'm starting to, uh, you know, be able to, to work with a lot of those choirs, um, I thought, what if we create a, a, a global choir community and we have choirs donate just a very, very doable amount, which to me, uh, I wanted to make it, you know, twenty dollars or something, but 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 we decided on a hundred because a hundred is doable for a choir as a one-time pledge. So I, I emailed a number of my choir representatives, uh, people that I know quite well, and they all said, "Oh my gosh, only a hundred dollars? Absolutely, we'll be involved." So then then uh, we said, "Okay, we're going to eventually launch this, which we've just launched." But what I've done, so then they said, "Well, you have to write a song." I think Sophia actually said you know, you have to write a song called Music Changes the World, if that's the name of the project. So I wrote the song, I guess, about a year ago or something like or maybe a year and a half ago. And everywhere I've been for the last two years, I've taken a video camera and an audio recorder, and I recorded choirs throughout the world. And we have about 12,000 singers on it. And we just released a video last week on YouTube. Um, and uh, the music is now published. So all the proceeds from the uh, the published sheet music are going towards this this, this um a fund, the Music Changes the World Fund, and we're funding music programs, uh, people that need help with that, that music programs are being cut because we're really committed to making, um, you know, giving music to, to youth. I think it's such a vital, essential part of a child's life. And uh, a lot of educators and people, they don't quite understand because it's unquantifiable. And I think that it is so important to us. So we have now released Music Changes the World. We have the, the choir uh, versions for young choirs and adult choirs. And we're just really excited about it. And we also know that every penny goes directly to these programs since everyone on the foundation is volunteer. So that's very important to us. And I, I might just add to that, too, that, you know, as, as we see um, programs suffer or, you know, music programs disappearing when budgets are cut, those, those are often the first to go. And even the efforts that we put forth, you know, to to – reinstate an entire music program is, you know, nearly impossible. But what it is we try to do is help provide opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So while we're, you know, we're not quite at the place where we can go into a school district and say, let's refulfill your program, but rather we try to say, well, what can we do to help the steps to get in that direction? Maybe the program is dissolving because of a lack of instruments. Maybe it's literally, maybe they just literally need a keyboard. Maybe they don't have a rehearsal space. Um, maybe it's not the program that's cut, but certain experiences. For example, um, we helped a choir who wasn't able to um, perform at a concert um, simply due to lack of transportation. So we, we, um, sponsored the transportation for them to get there. So sometimes it's, you know, and, and on top of that also, um, with Jim's songwriting workshops, there are often um, schools or communities that might not be able to afford to have that experience. So we just underwrite it so that they can, because we truly believe that these experiences should be able to reach all children and all young people, and that, you know, um, funds should not get in the way of these opportunities. So, um, so th those are sort of some of the tangible steps that those funds are going towards supporting so that we can say, we don't have to say goodbye to all of these experiences. We can help in some small way 
to make sure that these children still have that opportunity. Well, I think it's a wonder, wonderful global initiative, and, and the video is very well done, and I love all all the different children. And I live in London, Ontario, Canada, and I was happy to see that there is a children's choir from my own city that was in <laughs> the video. So I wanted to yes. share that to save it for the interview to say you've been in my hometown. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Now, I, was I know. Go ahead, Jim. Go ahead. No, I was just saying the way you said project, it sounded very London. And uh, because I, I'm actually going to be doing a residency in London next year for about a week with the Immobile Choir up there. Um, and uh, and I just recognized the accent. I just wanted to bring that up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you're definitely now, now that you're live on the radio and I, I'm going to have this taped, you're, you're now going to have to call me when you're here because we're now going to have to have dinner or something. So, Sophia, I'm holding him to that now, knowing he's coming Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Oh, how wonderful is that? The world is really a small place, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I know in addition to that initiative that you have going on, that you also offer some songwriting workshops through the foundation. And I know because Sophia was one of your students, because I learned that in her bio. So can you just give us a little bit of an overview on that workshop and when that started and how often you run them and where they're located? I'll start. I'll I'll sort of explain the workshop to you a little bit, um, and and Jim can tell you more about the history of it. So, um, so Jim uh, travels far and wide for these songwriting workshops. It's become really, um, you know, what uh, choirs love to have him come do. Um, and and you know he does it with children of all ages. He's even done it with some um, adult choirs as well. But mostly the voices of young people. Um, and I've watched him do many of them and participated in them myself. And um, so, you know, he really has such an incredible way with these children where he asks them a lot of things just in general first. What do they like about music? What kinds of genres of music can they think of? What are some artists that they like to listen to? And that's, for me, always the most fun part because it's fun to hear them mention you sort of hear all the contemporary artists and then every now and then you'll hear you know something thrown in that you might not expect and they may have learned about an artist from their parents or you know just really fun to kind of understand where they're coming from and then slowly as he gets to know them and they get to know him he starts to ask them uh, you know just some ideas about what kinds of messages they want to give to the world what does a seven-year-old child want to say to the world what does a 12-year-old or a 17-year-old child want to say um, and they start to just generally come up with themes and concepts and thoughts before they really start talking about, okay, well, now that we have our thoughts, what is, if this is our message, what kind of music do we want to put around this? Is it up-tempo? Is it in English? Does it combine with another language? Are, are there drums and other instruments? Is it slow? Is it in a minor key, a major key? Maybe it starts in one and evolves into the other. And that's when they really get into the nitty-gritty to create their piece. And, um, you know, I've seen him do it with a group of 20 children, with a group, you know, a group of a couple hundred. Um, it's always most fun to watch those smaller groups because, each child really has the opportunity to kind of expand their thoughts. Um, sometimes with the larger groups, he, and especially if they go over a couple of days, if, it, if uh, the children have their time overnight to think, they might submit some things on paper just to think about for more 
pieces for the future. So it's really fun to watch it develop and evolve and the kids who come in with those ideas and eventually are brave enough to share them and they really come up with something amazing. Yeah. And, and if I can just, just piggyback on that for a minute. So the actual, my first songwriting workshop was done. We were going to, after we did our concert at Carnegie hall, our kickoff concert, I was going to do a six city tour in China working with many different choirs and orchestras. And we were going to go on September 15th down to Washington to do a concert down there. And that was the week of September 11th, uh, uh, that happened. So obviously our trip got canceled and I was going to go, um, I was scheduled. Uh, I thought, well, what could be an easier way than rather than traveling with, you know, 40 people, what can we do? Maybe it's easier if I do these songwriting workshops and I was scheduled to do one in Miami uh, in the end of October. And I called them and I said, maybe this is not a good time. And, and the, the director of the Miami chorus said to me, you know what, this is actually the best time for us to do a songwriting workshop. And I went down there and that became this became the, began the journey of these songwriting workshops. And to me, it's so incredibly essential to hear what these young people want to say and be able to, to be in a forum and I'll get to know them. I'll play basketball with them. I'll play soccer with them. We'll talk about life and, and just kind of feel comfortable with one another. But then when we, when we get to it, we write, I mean, they are incredibly deep. I mean, and I think especially the youth now is so aware with, with the internet and the, they, they are so thoughtful and they have such deep ideas that it really startles. I mean, it surprises me every time I do it. And I do it with very, very underprivileged kids. I do it with choirs that are that are also very established. And I do it with adults and incarcerated teens and third graders and eighth graders and high schoolers and whatever it might be. But it's a fascinating way to just sit there with a group of young people and ask them what they want to express. And it's just, to me, it's like, what could be more than the actual direct voices of the next generation than by doing this process? And most of the pieces are now becoming published because it's just such a message and uh, it's just it's an incredible opportunity for me as a composer well i can hear how proud both of you are in in those workshops but i think the bigger message for me is how many young children whether it be five six seven years old get to ask what they'd like to say and have such a beautiful way to express it and just all the other elements that you're teaching those children of inclusivity and team building and patience and attention and just all those cognitive pieces as they're developing. I just, I think it's such a beautiful platform. So it's just, I, I can, I can sense uh, how rewarding these careers are for both of you. Now, beyond all the work that you're doing with children from all walks of life, I know that you've also conducted many orchestras through the world. And just to name a few, you've worked with the New York Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony and the London Symphony. And then you've also got the um, privilege to work with many great artists, um, Aretha Franklin, Shania Twain, Celine Dion, Beyonce, even Snoop Dogg, to name a few. So share with our listeners how you've broadened your reach from children to symphonies to working with some of the greatest musical artists that we listen to every day. Well, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I got involved uh, doing work with orchestras. I was actually doing a, a project um, of Eurythmy, which is a um, sort of a movement that's very big over in Europe where they actually – they, they sort of dance and move the notes. For example, if you're, if you're on an A flat, you're actually 
they, they have a certain movement for the A flat. So there's, there was this Eurythmy dance ensemble uh, that was going to do a world tour, and they needed someone who could conduct the music and also write an original piece and, and be able to do that kind of work, to, who spoke the language of world music and also traditional classical music. So that's how I began on that, that orchestral tour I conducted about, I think it was like 27 symphony orchestras worldwide and, and and it was just it was an amazing opportunity and then i got into i'm doing a series of orchestral pieces that i'm writing right now um and then i was doing my work at, at carnegie hall with with the uh a cbs television and they had their their, their 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 show every year and they hired me to be musical director paul schaefer had done it before i did um, and then they asked me to come in. So I got, I got the chance to work with all those artists. And then I did a show out in Los Angeles with Snoop Dogg at the LA Coliseum. And I was the musical director and it, you know, it's, uh, they, they were looking for someone that could speak the language of a symphony orchestra, but also knew how to, how to talk to an electric guitar player about his guitar sound on his amplifier. And they wanted to, you know, so, so they needed someone who spoke all those languages. So fortunately I did. My background is classical and jazz, but then I've also learned a lot about, I grew up actually, when I got out of grad school, I was a jingle composer in Manhattan. So I learned how to do, you know, some days it's a, you know, a, a, a classical string quartet with a harp and the next it's a hip hop on a, on a bucket with a rapper. I mean, like, so I had to really verse myself in all kinds of music. So that's how I got um, involved in that kind of a thing. And I try to really fuse them all together because I think they all complement one another. If I'm doing a, a hip hop track, it might influence how I'm writing for symphony orchestra. If I'm writing something for orchestra, it might influence something that I'm doing for a children's choir. So it all, I, I mean, I just sort of immerse myself in music all day long. And I think they all, they all complement one another in, in a, in a sort of a, in a depth of sorts. So that's what I look for in all of my music that I write. So I have to ask the million dollar question, cause I'm, I'm just sitting here in awe of all the work that you're both doing if I, I'm assuming you both own an iPhone. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? It is. Yes, it is. <laughs> so what would be the top five, I'm going to say playlist or artist that you each would have and listen to on your iPhones? Do you have a diversified genre of music you listen to? I do. Sophia, why don't you answer? First for you. Oh gosh, I mean, <laughs> that is a million dollar question. It's and weirdly enough, it's a difficult question in a way because it just depends on you know. I mean, I, I, one thing that I love so much about music is how universal it is truly, which sounds like always sounds like the thing people say, right? But it's because it's so true, and and I think it's because no matter what, you're in your car, you're at home, you're cleaning, you're cooking, you're on the way somewhere or whatever, you're listening to something. And so for me, it just depends on what I'm doing. I absolutely love listening to instrumental music. Sometimes that's classical music. Sometimes it's jazz. I, I, um, I really, really love jazz. Um, and I love to listen to Ella Fitzgerald and um, you know, sort of music from the 40s. I also really love musical theater. Um, I just grew up with it. I was in a lot of shows as a kid, as a young adult, um, and so I really will get in the mood for that as well. And um, and and I also love um, listening to uh, um, 
sort of every now and then it just feels good to put on sort of like top 40, you know, and just kind of hear and dance and sing along and all of that kind of thing. Um, and then I'd say the the one other sort of genre I, I'd like to put on often is um, sort of Afro-Latin, you know, Cuban sort of um, dance sort of music from all over. Um, it's always a lot of fun to listen to as well. Yeah, and my answer to that would be Shostakovich, Prokofiev, Bach, Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind, Fire, and James Brown. See, he's got it. See, there was no, there was no hesitation. I knew it because I, I knew Sophia was gonna. I, I knew how she, she was gonna flow with the answer. And I have to tell you, I, I love the '40s myself. I love Ella Fitzgerald. I love Ray Charles. But I'm, I'm also, you know, we talked about this before we went live. It depends on what we need to do cognitively. If I'm yeah. like super tired and I need to do writing or create, I need the classical music or I just need that back, background piano relaxation. Other times I need something a little bit more up tempo to inspire me. So I love the cognitive piece that music plays and the role that it plays depending on what we're doing. And I know we chatted about this before the uh, interview went live and it's so important for babies to have exposure to music because they are able to respond right after they're born because they don't have that ability for verbal expression yet, but you can see them respond with their looks and their eye contact. And I, I just find that it boosts their language skills. I expose both of my children to music very early and they are, we are a music family. There's always music playing in our house. So I know that you've done some work with some different types of populations. So I just wanted to hone in on that whole cognitive piece and on a professional level or even personal level, how you guys see that with people that you've worked with or even just that cognitive process in general and what music brings to us. Well, I mean, I, I really th- honestly I think of it in a in in a very simple way. I think that people respond to music in an in an extremely natural and almost instinctive way. And I think that for me is what strikes me the most is I'll often tell a choir I'm working with, you know, a lot of times when you think about singing in a choir, you are thinking about standing on risers and you know, delivering this choir music. And we, a lot of, a lot of us, a lot of people think that way, children, adults. But I, I always ask the children, what if you were just delivering this music, but you happen to be doing it by singing in a choir? How would you think of it? So once you take out the choir element, they think, well, this music makes me want to dance. Okay, so then when we're on the rise, when we are back in our choir and we are on the risers and we are, let's talk about what that means. How do we move our bodies? How do we, you know, so, so for me, sort of the journey through singing and in, in particular singing in a choral setting, um, I'm, it, that does something to our brains. We filter it differently. And I really want to sort of direct um, children to bring it back to just communicating music and you happen to be doing it through a choir. So what does the music speak to you? What if I played this music? What would your body want to do? Does your body want to lay down and close your eyes? 
Does your body want to dance? Does your body want to just sit and listen and enjoy? And I think um, because it is such a part of our lives and because there are so many situations in life where music is present and sometimes we don't even realize it at a restaurant or whatever, um, there's such a natural response and there's such, and, and children just know. Children know what they want. They know what they want to listen to. They also know when they want silence. It's a really fascinating thing to me. Yeah, and just to talk about uh, groups of children. Um, so I was recently up in Nova Scotia, which is not too far from you, um, and I was doing a, a songwriting workshop with, now what they call them up there, it's a different, uh, it, they said they're neurodiverse, which is a, a large spectrum of autism and, and um down syndrome and all kinds of, uh, you know, the sort of people that couldn't be in, in, in regular choirs, uh, neurotypical choirs. And I did a songwriting workshop up with them and some of the kids didn't speak, but they could sing, which, which was absolutely fascinating to me as a composer. So we actually did a songwriting workshop together. I'm going back up there next year to do a concert with them. And that to me, you know, watching these kids respond and have the attention span it is just it was one of the most fulfilling moments I've ever had in my entire life working with this group because these are kids that couldn't sit sit still a lot of times and there they were contributing and sometimes with outbursts but they 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 had this collective spirit that that evolved during this session and it was just I, I mean it was just transforming for me as a person as a composer uh, it was just incredible so that's and I work with a lot of kids who are also very very underprivileged and don't have a lot of nurturing at home and 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 music is a big outlet for them and it's just it's the 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 you know with, with all the things that are going on in the world today the most the the thing that I think that I can do as a composer is bring them moments of beauty and somehow that will somehow permeate into society in some way into their lives and that's all I can really hope for so that's that's a big part of what we do well, that just makes my heart smile because people don't realize if a child has a developmental delay like autism or Down syndrome and they are unable to have that verbal expression, I've also witnessed uh, what you got to witness and to see them sing is very beautiful. And I just believe that they're able to hear the music auditorially and I think it speaks to their heart and to see them sing is it's almost indescribable. So I, I really feel your emotion from, from that experience and, and, and just what a beautiful thing to you for you to be part of just another element of, of your talents and, and where the world keeps bringing you, Jim, it's, it's very unique. So I wanted to know if either of you have worked with someone individual, because I know you've done a lot of groups in, in your teaching and your composing work, but could you share with me an example of maybe how you've helped coach or mentor someone and what improvements did you see in that person and either their knowledge or skill? That is an interesting and difficult question. And I have to say that the very first, Thing that came to mind for me when you asked that is that I gave voice lessons once to um, a hearing impaired adult and he this was years ago and he was actually a neighbor and his wife had asked me if I would consider she, for Valentine's Day she wanted to gift him with you know a month's worth of voice lessons because he always wanted to sing and he had been told that, you know, he had hearing aids and he could hear um, 
certainly to a to a to a great degree, but he had had undergone so many years worth of ups and downs with his hearing impairment that um, that you know he had actually been told flat out he always wanted to sing, and he had been told you know you really shouldn't hope to sing. It's it's that's really hard. For, that's going to be really hard for you. And I just remember, I mean, I I could I could tell uh, long stories about our experiences together, but I will just say that. Um, I remember our first lesson, and I also remember that we went well beyond the month. We we spent um, time together once a week, and by the end, we had just gotten fly me to the moon down, and he started off just, um, I just wanted to find where his range was, so I just asked him to sing a note that felt comfortable to him, sing me any note, and so I found his note. And then we worked around it and we expanded his range from where he was comfortable beginning. And then by the end of our time together, we were singing that song. Um, And it was really, he shared how transformative it was for him, but it was, it was especially transformative for me because I, it always breaks my heart. You know, a lot of times when, when you're a music teacher, people are always telling you, Oh my gosh, that's great. I can't sing at all. You know? (laughs) And, and, I really truly believe that everyone can sing. I truly do. Um, And I I get that there are varying degrees of people being comfortable with it or enjoying it or feeling like they're good at it. But I, I believed that before this experience. And then when I had this experience with him, I, it was just this sort of surge of, of feeling like, wow, this is, this really is a powerful thing. And people can be, some people are born with a more natural gift than others maybe, but, but people really can be taught as well. And, and when they have the desire and the love and the passion for it, um, you know, it really can become a really transformative experience. And, and that was something that when you asked that question, I thought, oh my gosh, uh, there are countless things I could think of for sure, but this, this one individual really sprang to mind. And can I answer that same question? Absolutely. Uh, so I was working with some children in Africa, and uh, this one little boy uh, did not speak because he actually saw his parents killed and didn't speak for about four months and was working with this choir. And he would come to the choir and would stand there and did not sing or not say anything. And then during the time when I was there, he actually started singing, and it was and he felt this, you know, because it, there's a book that's called Women, uh, uh, Children Who Can't Sing. And they, they, don't, they, they don't actually get connected and feel that guttural voice come out of their body. And he obviously was traumatized. And music did something to him, pulled him out of that. And to me, that, is, that, was, that would be my answer by, by far, that one, that one moment that I had when I witnessed him be able to actually sing and, and, and make some sounds. That was, that was one of the most transformative moments ever. Well, it's it's a unique um, question in that I, I knew that you both were going to have a different perspective. And I, I loved, Sophia, that it, it brought you to that memory right away because certain questions like that bring us to something that's etched in our long-term memory because there was some emotion attached to that and you landed up working with him longer than you did. And even the young boy in Africa, Jim, you know, it's just interesting with these children who are nonverbal, I, I truly believe, like I said before, that the music speaks to their heart and just allows them to speak in a way that's 
fluent and easy and I think is part of their emotion that maybe they can't express verbally depending on their disability or a life experience. So it's just a beautiful thing. So Jim, I want you to know I I did a little bit of homework on composing and I think I I have a technical question for you. So I'm going to do my best and I I even have had to do a little bit of research on these two terms because I thought okay, if I ask you this, I want to make sure that I'm I'm going to pronunciate these words right. So you may have a laugh at this or you might say, "Oh, Deb, that's an easy question." So, here's my question. <laughs> How do you see the relationship between timbre and composition? Uh, well, I think they're both complementary of one another. And um, no one has ever asked me that question ever. <laughs> um, and, I mean, timbre to me is, you know, it, with choir, is something way different than it is with an orchestra, of course. But I think that, that, that um, the answer to me is when I'm a conductor, when I conduct a choir, timbre is such an important part of of being a choir because you can't just sing the notes and you sing the rhythms correctly. That, that is not learning a piece. A lot of teachers think that that's how you learn a piece when you know the notes and the rhythm. But to me, it's all about timbre and creating and shaping that form. It's like a piece of clay that you're molding. So that would be my answer to that is composition is notes and rhythm, but timbre is, is actually feeling and connection to yourself and to others. That would be my answer. Well, as a radio show host, when people tell me that they've never been asked that question before, then my job is done. Yeah, I think so. I like I like hearing that. That is music to my ears, Jim. So I just <laughs> I want to thank you both for your sponsorship for March. I am going to uh, send people to that amazing video for your initiative that you have right now. And I hope it gets into the hands of many, many choir directors. And I just want to say kudos to both of you for the work that you're doing. And it's just a pleasure to know you. It's been an honor and a privilege to interview you tonight. And I look forward to meeting you next year when you're here in London, Ontario, Canada, Jim. And Sophia, I hope you come along. I hope so. Thank you so much for having us. It really is such a joy. We we really feel so passionate about what we do, and um, and it's just really such a joy to share it and to um, just to talk. and And we really appreciate you and your time. Well, it's been my pleasure, and just keep serving the world and giving the gift of your talents through the beautiful music that you teach and compose and direct with all the choirs. And I look forward to staying in contact with you both and wish you nothing but success. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Deb. My pleasure. Take care. Just such an honor for me to have my sponsor from March, Jim and Sophia. Sophia Papoulis from the Foundation for Small Voices, and just to listen to the phenomenal work that they're doing around the globe with children's choirs and songwriting workshops and working with children with different types of disabilities and Sophia in all the teaching. And if we could get every choir in the world to donate $100 to put music no longer have music programs or to countries that are impoverished and children do not have the foundation or the access to music. To me, that's money well spent. 
So who do you know? Who do you know that directs the choir and that you could put them in the hands of Jim and Sophia Papoulis and the Foundation for Small Voices? So their website is www.foundationforsmallvoices.org. All of the information is there. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me again on March the 28th and tuning in to the Changebook Radio Show. And I look forward to being back with you next week, April, with with a new sponsor for the month that I'm excited to announce next week and a lineup of amazing guests, co-authors, and experts. So this is Deb Crow. I thank you again, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>